0: This is part two in the talk of how to learn to trust yourself or as I was coming over here I gave it the subtitle how Charlie Brown got Lucy's voice out of his head. (laughs) I had talked about having a sense of faith or trust in the power of our own awareness in our Undying capacity to love in the force and the effectiveness of our own effort. And I want to start tonight by talking about the power of having faith or trust in our own understanding of suffering, of discontent of dis-ease, of unsatisfactoriness, of hollowness, of change. This group of characteristics put together in Pali is Dukkha. Last year when I did not teach this retreat I spent most of the time of the fall in Santa Fe. I was leading a five or six week metta class, and I was finishing my book. Just at the end of that period, somebody in anticipation of my book coming out uh, interviewed me for a local newspaper. She asked me a whole bunch of questions in the beginning, and they all started with well, do you believe in this or do you believe in that? And I kept saying, no, no, no. (laughs) And finally she looked at me and she said, what do you believe in? (laughs) Much to my surprise, I'm not sure who was more surprised, she or I, she said to me, what do you believe in? And I found myself saying, suffering. I believe in suffering. She looked shocked. I was shocked. but it was true. It goes back to that very commonly quoted statement of the Buddhas when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering doesn't necessarily mean grave pain It means this sense of dukkha, of the fleetingness of things, things being ungovernable, that we cannot control them. They're insubstantial. They change whether we like them to or not. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. Perhaps it's this statement almost more than any other that has given the teachings of the Buddha this certain air of pessimism in the, the worldly conventional view. But it's not meant to be depressing or disturbing in that sense. It's a tremendous statement of an affirmation of that which in fact we already know to be true. I had a friend who got very sick, he was given a terminal diagnosis and the first thing he said upon hearing that was, I'm not going to make an enemy of my own death, which was a beautiful statement that in fact he lived up to. (laughs) But I think we've learned that, most of us, or many of us, We've learned to make an enemy of our own death. We've learned to make an enemy of our own suffering, our mental suffering, our physical suffering. And therefore, we've learned to make an enemy of our own perceptions, our own vision of what is true. We've learned to make an enemy of life itself in this way. And we all know how easy it is for a child to lose faith in themselves because very often in family life there is difficulty, there's sometimes very great suffering and what often happens is that in some effort to shield the child from the truth of things there's a very great silence that descends It's not the silence that we practice here. It's the silence of denial, of avoidance. And so there may be terrible abuse going on. There may be tremendous violence going on. There may be discord, conflict, fear, insecurity, all kinds of things which are just not spoken about. Or if ever spoken about, they're completely repackaged and manipulated so that they don't really convey the pain of the actual experience. Now clearly, the child knows somewhere in them what is actually going on. But because there is no external affirmation of what they know quite well to be true, people learn not to trust themselves there's this split, this great disharmony that arises between one's inner sense of what is true and everything the world, the family, society, the world is is putting out, is communicating. This is how people are not to trust themselves. For that reason, that one statement I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering, and the end of suffering is an enormous liberation. Because here it is, this is the truth of things. These things also exist. There is pleasure, great pleasure in this world and there is a lot of pain. There are wonderful arisings, things, people, times of coming together and there are partings, there's loss, there's separation, there's passing, there's birth and also death. This is the truth of things. So it's tremendous to have that kind of recognition. Even just that one teaching apart from anything else is an extraordinary gift to us. There's a different quality of silence that we practice here that isn't the silence of covering things up. We're trying to pretend that everything is oh so nice and very pleasant. It's the kind of silence or the quality of silence that we practice here that gives us the opportunity. It actually gives us the chance to discover and nurture and honor and respect our own sense of what is true. And there's some pain in this. The poet Rumi said, pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself and this pain will make you go behind the veil. It's natural in this process to feel pain, to feel uneasy, to feel lonely. Because look at what we're doing. In some way, we're questioning everything. We're questioning who we are, questioning what our lives are about. We're questioning all of our assumptions about happiness. We're questioning a lot of what we may have believed in. And we're even questioning the value of belief itself as compared to a direct and intimate experience of what is happening. There is a great loneliness in some way in this call to awakening. I often think about in the the legends, the story of the Buddha's life prior to his enlightenment, he was known as the bodhisattva, as a being who's aspiring toward enlightenment. Born as the bodhisattva, in fact he was born as a prince and he had quite a delightful life. It said that, as many of you know, there was a, a prophecy at the time of his birth saying that there were two ways possible for him. One was for him to become a world-reigning monarch and the other was for him to become an awakened one, a Buddha. His father, hearing this and disregarding another prophecy which said that the child would become a Buddha, decided that he was going to protect him from ever having to see anything unhappy. And that way he could keep him in the palace. He could, he could raise him. He would become a world reigning monarch. He would stay and fulfill that destiny. So it said that his father would do things like he would employ a team of gardeners to go into the, the palace gardens at night to pluck out any withering blossoms so that no such unsightly thing would fall upon the eyes of the bodhisattva and he would not be moved to question. He would just enjoy his life of pleasure. It's actually that seeing of, of suffering, of death, of loss, of change. That's what moves us to question. It's easy to be unconscious. There is nothing easier it takes something very compelling to turn around, to turn away from all of the easy answers. And as you know the legend, it was at the age of 29 that the bodhisattva actually left the palace grounds and saw an old person and a sick person and a corpse and then a renunciate, which was his call to awakening. It takes a lot to unstick, to turn around, to turn away. And as much courage and integrity as there is in that movement, there's an uneasiness, there's a loneliness, because we're giving up the easy answer. This is from the poet Ryukon, who was a Soto Zen monk. He was born around uh, 1758. He said, I sit quietly, listening to the falling leaves, a lonely hut, a life of renunciation. The past has faded. Things are no longer remembered. My sleeve is wet with tears." I was always reassured in re- reading things like that because I used to have this fear that these, in these days of old, the men and women who were practicing the Dhamma made the decision to practice and suffered no more <laughs> from that day forward. And it was only I <laughs> that seemed to find some difficulty in disentangling and all of the questions and all of the um, demands of the spiritual life. Yet it's not a pursuit of pain. The loneliness, the dis-ease, the, the questioning transforms into A sense of refuge. It's hard to leave home, but then we discover a very different meaning of home. Those questions that uneasiness transforms into a recognition of being in harmony with the truth. This is why we practice to live and be in harmony with the truth, not to be apart from that. And that's real loneliness to be cut off from the wellspring of the truth. It's like as we live our lives ordinarily it's like seeing a mirage. We see an oasis in in a mirage and then we create first a fence around it to protect it and defend it and then a whole village we We create a way of life around this mirage. That is real loneliness being lost in our own dream with a great sense of futility and a real waste of time. We practice to live in harmony with the truth. It's not as though, according to the teachings, there was a solid, permanent, or there is a solid, permanent unchanging entity called self within us, that has been taking care of us, that's been showing us a good time. And somehow in this practice we're going to eradicate it. When we envision the practice in that way, it's terrifying. It's a sense of annihilation. But really we practice just to be in harmony with the truth. Now the Buddha posited that this solid, unchanging, separate, permanent, unyielding, in control entity, never existed to begin with. That's the mirage. And so all we lose in following the path is ignorance. It's delusion. It's separation. It's all that wasted time of trying to protect and defend which, that which has never existed anyway. It's better to wake up from that dream. It's always better to wake up from that dream. It's always better to live in harmony with the truth. It's like our minds are almost like a mirror looking outward. And in the process of turning away this, this mirror-like mind, it pivots back to reflect its own nature it turns around and we see what is called the natural radiance, purity, luminosity of the mind. As the Buddha said, the mind is shining. This is what we turn around to, to clarity, to luminosity, to peace. And as the Buddha said, One who is heedful or one who is mindful is on the path to the deathless. One who is heedless or one who is mindless is as if dead already. This is how we can spend an hour, a day, a week, or a lifetime, as if dead already. It's always better to wake up and be in harmony with how things actually are. This is also from Ryokan. The rain has stopped, the clouds have drifted away, and the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world, abandon yourself. Then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. To abandon the fleeting world, to abandon ourselves, doesn't mean to throw it away or hate it or despise it or condemn it. It means to unstick, to allow the mind to turn around, not to be so fascinated or repelled by objects, not to be so caught in elaboration or judgment around our changing experience but to allow the mind to turn around, to see itself, to see its own nature, to rest in that natural purity. Then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. So it's almost as though in our practice we're pushed from behind by suffering, which makes us wake up, ask some difficult questions, not take the easy answers, not stay stuck to objects that come and go, to experiences that come and go. We're pushed into waking up, pushed from behind by suffering, and we're pulled from ahead by the Dharma. The Dharma, as you know, has many meanings, that word, it means the truth, it means the teachings, it means the law, it means the nature of things, And it also means that which supports us, that which protects us, that which upholds us. So, a very beautiful saying is the Dharma will protect one who protects the Dharma. We begin to have faith in our own experience of the truth, in seeing things how they are. It's like We hear the ocean rhythms beneath other sounds when we're staying by the ocean. And we learn to see clearly through experience some of the fundamental laws of nature that are operating in our lives. These laws classically are impermanence and dukkha or unsatisfactoriness and that very difficult concept of egolessness or selflessness or one might say transparency, insubstantiality of all things that arise in the world. This is what practice actually is. And fortunately enough, since it's said that every single thing that we can know or feel or have happened to us shares these three characteristics, it's another way of saying it doesn't matter what happens to us in our practice. Whatever arises, painful or pleasant, joyous or sorrowful, mental, physical, boring exciting, whatever it is, it is of these three characteristics. And so we can see them anywhere. Sometimes one or another of these characteristics is very pronounced, it's very prominent in our practice and practice often takes a different flavor depending upon what is most pronounced. Sometimes we're seeing impermanence But we're seeing impermanence in a way that quite without thought or contrivance or wanting it to be so, we're seeing impermanence in a way that emphasizes the beginnings of things, the arising of objects. In those times in practice we're living in a world of creation, of coming into being. And it's glorious. We see, we see all of this universe, this play of phenomena, this world of presentation, we see it as it's arising. And it's wonderful. It's beautiful. We like those times. Sometimes we're seeing impermanence. And again, this isn't a decision that we make or, or an effort. Uh, you know, it's not like a menu. You know, we say, well today I'd like to see impermanence. And, Uh, we'll leave dukkha off until, you know, I'm a little stronger or something. It's just how things evolve. Sometimes we see impermanence in a way that emphasizes the passings of things. Everything seems fleeting, it's falling away, it's falling apart. We don't have a sense that we can take a stand anywhere, that we can hold on to anything. Everything is dissolving. Sometimes what is most pronounced is a sense of unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes it's it's the transparency of things. It's all good practice and it feels very different at different times. Usually we tell ourselves a story about what's happening and we believe hugely in that story. It's a very rare person who will say, well, everything seems to be falling away. I'm uncomfortable in my mind and my body. There's nothing to hold on to. I feel lonely. Uh, I can see that there's no, no place to take a stand. There's no home in samsara. This is really good practice. Mostly what we say to ourselves and to whoever we happen to be talking to is, I'm a mess. You know, (laughs) I can't practice. I can't seem to connect to anything. I feel really bummed out. I'm, you know, I'm depressed. Uh, You know, there must be something wrong with me. This isn't the right time for me to be doing a retreat. And, you know, everyone else is fine. And I'm, I'm having a terrible time of it. That's the more common thing. But dukkha, when it manifests, may come through a personal story but that's not what it's about. It's about opening to that part of life, that aspect of our experience, which is very true and which it takes quite a bit to open to. There's very little in our world, very little in our conditioning, that's going to affirm the power and the, the importance of that opening. And yet it's very important. Sometimes we experience dukkha very directly and graphically. Our knees hurt and our back hurts and, and our mind hurts. Sometimes it's in a much more subtle way. You can't note what's going on. Your practice doesn't seem to be going very well in your assessment. Sometimes it's about the lack of ability to control things. The ungovernability of the mind. You know, I decided that I will not be sleepy anymore in this retreat and then I fell asleep. (laughs) It's dukkha. I've had, I can't even count, I was trying to think about it when I was working on this talk. I couldn't actually even come up with a number because it was so big. I've had countless interviews with Upandita where I've gone in and I've said to him, things are really bad. You know, My knees hurt, my back hurts, I have uncontrollable movement in the body, my mind is all over the place, I can't practice, things are really bad. And he looks at me in response and says, this is dukkha, isn't it? Then I look at him with this this face of enormous expectation waiting for him to say the magic thing, the one little technical change that he's going to suggest, like walk a little more sit a little more or sit in a chair or don't sit in a chair or count your breath. I'm waiting for him to say the magic thing that's going to make the suffering go away. So I just sit there and I look at him with this this face of enormous expectation and he repeats, this is Dukkha, isn't it? (laughs) Which was very compelling after a while. This is Dukkha. And what he was saying to me was, this is right. You know, this isn't just a personal drama. This is an opening into this aspect of life. This is how it is. This is one way it must be seen and acknowledged. Not to immerse yourself in it, not to get lost in it, but to be that fully open. Another way he said it one time to somebody was, stop trying to make things better. Just be with things as they really are. This is a very delicate teaching because it doesn't mean just be passive or that there's never a time in our lives when we should try to make things better or uh, even in meditation it doesn't mean that there's no time when we should be rebalancing something in some way. It means that grasping, that fervor to control, to make things all right, to not have to look at the fact that sometimes it's not all right sometimes it really does hurt. That's what he's talking about. Stop trying to make things better. It's a very delicate teaching because the suffering that we experience the dukkha is not just gratuitous suffering. I have an incredible memory of my very early practice which was so painful and I remember at one point I went marching up to, to my first teacher who was sitting calmly in the front of the room. I looked him in the eye and I said, isn't there an easier way? It's very funny looking back because it, it almost now uh, feels like I had the impression that if I could only catch him off guard, you know, I could somehow force him to admit that yes. You know, there's a far easier way. I've simply chosen not to teach it to you because I'm a sadist. And, you know, I really enjoy watching people suffer. And, you know, I don't know what I had in mind, but it felt like maybe that's what I had in mind. And I went up to him and I I asked just that. I said, isn't there an easier way just like that? And I actually don't think he answered me. I think he just laughed. But what I remember most from that time was the look in his eye because it felt as though he was relating from a place of timelessness. It was so vast. It was so huge. It was as though he had watched me in lifetime after lifetime. And that was his genuine perspective so that the difficulties I was having in sitting still because of my knee pain that afternoon, it was truly difficult but it was held in such a huge, vast perspective. It was really timeless. And in fact this is how the Dharma is. It's outside of time. It's absolutely timeless. The suffering that we experience is about unsticking. It's not the normal kind of, of difficulty in the world, which is that terrible effort to control what actually can't be controlled. It's about looking anew, letting go, learning about ourselves. I recently had this funny experience of, um, I had a friend, I have a friend uh, in California who has never been to the east coast and she was supposed to come visit at the end of this week. Never having been to the east coast she's never seen the autumn. So for the last two weeks, every day as I've walked the loop I've looked at the beautiful, glorious leaves on the trees with a feeling of wanting to stick them on the trees so that they would still be there when she came. And it was I could feel it, it's like I wanted this to stay, I wanted it to remain, and as it turned out she's not coming so when I heard she wasn't coming I felt this relief that I could just let nature take its course, <laughs> you know, as though I could have kept the leaves on the trees. But it was really, I really felt it coming up of like, okay, it's got to be this way when she comes because of, you know, the leaves fall and they're all brown and shriveled and, you know, what kind of a, an autumn visit will that be for her? I mean, it's ludicrous, but <laughs> how much of our lives do we spend trying to keep those leaves on the tree, trying to defy the laws of nature as though we could control it for the sake of our own pleasure, to be able to exhibit it to others, to keep things from changing. It's very oppressive. That is really terrible suffering. We say that the kind of dis-ease, uncertainty, re-looking, unsteadiness, loneliness, fear, that one experiences in the Dharma is the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. It's all about unsticking, taking a new look, being courageous, entering the unknown, letting the mind turn around so that it can see its own nature. This is from Aristotle who said, Suffering becomes beautiful when anyone bears great calamities with cheerfulness, not through insensibility, but through greatness of mind. I don't know if I would have said cheerfulness, which sounds a little too cheerful. But I would say with peace and with faith, when we can bear suffering, with a sense of peace, with a recognition of faith, of trust, in this experience, then that really is greatness of mind. Everybody suffers, but as we are forced to admit, not everybody is made noble by it. It's easy in this world which denies the inevitability of change of suffering to feel very alone when in fact things do change when we experience loss or pain or sorrow of some kind because the entire message is that's an aberration you should have been able to control it why couldn't you keep those leaves on the tree That's what we hear all of the time. So what happens when things inevitably take their course? The body changes, it gets older, gets sick, we die. How often do people feel personally humiliated? Too often. Or we have some kind of emotional or psychological suffering. Doesn't seem to match what we feel we should be feeling. Our family life is fraught with difficulty, with discord. It doesn't look like what it looks like on television. We feel very alone. We feel terribly alone. And yet it's the truth of things. Trusting that empowers us hugely to see it for what it is not to waste time in trying to control what can never be controlled. To have a real sense of presence and compassion and perspective on what our experience actually is. This is from Rilke. So you must not be frightened if a sadness rises up before you larger than any you have ever seen, if a restiveness like light and cloud shadows passes over your hands and over all you do, you must think that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand. It will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any agitation, any pain, any melancholy, since you really do not know what these states are working upon you? Why do you want to persecute yourself with the question, from where is all this coming and to where is it bound? I found that reference to persecution very interesting, because in the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology, as different mental states are talked about, they're often talked about in terms of their uh, characteristics, in terms of their function, in terms of their manifestations. And persecution is talked about in reference to the manifestation of anger when we are lost in a state of anger, of protestation there's a quality of persecution to it according to the teachings. That means isolating, narrow, limited overwhelmed, oppressed. There's a story from the time of the Buddha about a woman who had recently suffered the death of her child. She was married, it said, in a situation where she was not treated very well by her in-laws. And then she gave birth to a son, which of course is, is a very uh, great thing in Indian culture. So she was treated much better. then her son died. When her son died, she went insane, with grief, literally insane. And it said that she was walking through the streets, holding on to this, this dead baby, going from holy person to holy person, asking for a cure, saying, you must cure my son, you must bring him back to life. And people treated her one way or another, and finally she went to the Buddha with her plea, saying, please, you must cure my son, you must bring him back to life. And the Buddha said, okay, I will. But you have to go, in order for me to do that, you have to go around and bring me a mustard seed from a house in which there's been no death, a house in which there's been no loss. So she went, from house to house, saying, please, could you give me a mustard seed? And as people prepared to do that, she said, wait a minute, there is one condition. It has to be from a place in which there has been no death, in which there has been no suffering, in which there has been no loss. And the people would laugh and they'd say, that's impossible, you know, certainly not here. And as she went from house to house, getting the same answer in every house, it said that she recovered her sanity and she understood that she was not alone in this, in this suffering, that this is the nature of things. So recognize that something, recognizing that something is the nature of things doesn't mean that we don't care. It means that we recognize we're not alone that what we are bearing is not some unusual aberration that has descended upon us like a curse. It's the nature of things. This is what we all share. So it said that she recovered her sanity and she went back to the Buddha saying that she understood now. She buried her, her child and became a nun. And I'm sure you'll all be happy to know that she became fully enlightened. (laughs) So we open to this pain not for the sake of getting depressed, uh, but for what it has to teach us to see things in a different way, to have the courage to let go, to recognize that we're not alone. We could never be alone in this kind of experience. To have the, the faith and the determination to persevere, to keep going, not to get lost in that swamp of judgment about our experience. To see that the most important thing is to see through things to those, those innate truths those laws which are waiting to be revealed to us. We call it the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And we need to have faith in that. In the rightfulness of our own experience, in the greatness of our own minds, in the truth of what we perceive, and in the power of all of its effects as we learn to to relinquish, to have compassion, to care and not to feel so alone. We're really, we're never alone, neither in our suffering nor in our joy as Rilke said, life has not forgotten you. Somebody once told me something very beautiful. She said that, this is when I was teaching a metta retreat someplace, she said that she had been having a very, very difficult year with a lot of emotional pain. And she said that the one thing that really had given her the strength to go on was the recognition that somewhere in the world there was somebody sending metta to all beings, and that that included her. That never having met her, not having known her, having no particular connection to her, there was somebody actually sending her metta simply by virtue of the fact that she was, that she existed. And I thought, how wonderful to feel that always somebody who has dedicated that hour, that moment, that lifetime to generating love and compassion for all beings, we're getting some of that. It's great. And to recognize that, in fact, when we are sending metta, when we're offering, Metta and compassion to all beings everywhere. That for some people, that is a very important gift. Just to know that without knowing anything about you, without knowing who you are, it's not because you're nice, you know, and it's not because you deserve it in the ordinary course of events because you gave me a gift or something like that. Simply by the fact of your being there is somebody who is wishing you well really wishing for your happiness. We're never actually alone neither as recipients nor as those who can make this kind of offering. I think I will close now with this poem and go on one more time (laughs) next week uh, with the last thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of having trust in ourselves which was about trust in the truth of our interconnectedness. This poem is from a woman who lived in Japan about the year 1000. Her name was Izumi Shikibu. And this is what she says, Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. I read that and I thought, well, how wonderful. You know, the house is ruined. It's falling apart. The roof planks are separate, probably falling down on her head. And the wind is blowing terribly, but the moonlight, given that nature of disintegration, of falling apart, the moonlight also has a chance to come through. Let's sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.